This is Season 3, Episode 1 of the Days Gone By Podcast. I'm your host, Matt McBrayer, and I would like to share with you some of the things that we've been working on here in recent months. We have been blessed to have uh, audio from various sources coming to us, and uh, we're going to give you details on that uh, more later on as uh, the season continues on. Uh, But uh, we'd like to let everybody know that uh, if you'd like to donate uh, some cassette tapes, uh, we have been... Uh, blessed with uh, several tapes from various sources, and we have been converting these into digital. And if you have some that you'd like to share with us, uh, please email us at san at msop.org. All right, so today we have a lesson from Guyan Woods on the Middle East. In recent months, this has been in the news, and at uh, at the time, Brother Woods uh, preached on this conflict, uh, the conflict was strong. Brother Woods does an excellent job at getting to the root of the problem uh, in the conflict in the Middle East, and so I hope that you are blessed with this just as I have been listening to it. Well, and very present uh, situation, and yet a rather unusual one. I think all of us are deeply disturbed by events that are occurring in what is sometimes known as the Holy Land. In the news this morning, there was an item about uh, further casualties in that unhappy country. Because these events have a biblical background, I thought you might be interested in having an update on what has led to what is undoubtedly one of the most explosive and threatening situations on earth today, the problem of war in the Holy Land. So let's take a look at some events that happened a long, long ago that lead up to and are now causing these events that we hear so much about today. You're aware of the fact that in the long ago the Lord appeared to Abraham while in the era of the Chaldees and instructed him to leave that land and go into a country which the Lord would show him. Abraham, in company with his wife Sarah, his father Terah, and his nephew Lot, left the area of the Chaldees and journeyed northwestward until they came to a place called Haran, where it appears that they stopped for about five years, and where Terah, Abraham's father, died at the age of 205. After the death of Terah, the Lord again appeared to Abraham, and instructed him to go on into the land of Canaan. When he got there, he was called the Hebrew. The word Hebrew means from beyond the river. And because Abraham and his family came from beyond the river, that is the river Jordan, the river Euphrates, they were identified as the people from beyond the river, that is, the Hebrews. And so the name applied and has continued with them until this day. After Abraham got into the land, the Lord made a promise to him of a temporal and a spiritual nature. The temporal promise was, lift up your eyes and look to the east and to the west and to the north and the south, and all that you see I'll give you as an inheritance. But there was also a spiritual promise. And that's set out in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. I'll make of you a great nation. For in thee shall all the families 
of the earth be blessed. In order to the fulfillment of that promise, it was necessary that Abraham and Sarah have a child. But remember that at that time, Sarah had already reached the age of being past childbearing. And so she resorted to a device because she couldn't see how the promise could be fulfilled otherwise. She resorted to a device, the design of which was to extricate God from a difficulty. She conceived the notion of having her handmaid, Hagar, to become the mother of a child by Abraham, and so enable the promise to be fulfilled. As a result, Ishmael was born. And while Abraham and Sarah and Hagar all tried to get God to accept Ishmael as the child of promise, he steadfastly refused, insisting that through Abraham and Sarah would the seed come. Thirteen years later, Sarah did indeed miraculously conceive and bore Isaac. And Isaac became the child of promise. Now at this point, watch very carefully. Abraham, through Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, became the father of the Arab peoples. Abraham, through Sarah and the birth of Isaac, became the mother of the Jewish peoples. Their mothers hated each other. Their children have fought each other ever since. So it began with Sarah trying to get the Lord out of a difficulty. As you know, that promise was repeated to Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he became the father of the patriarchs, to whom also the promise was made. They were carried into Egypt and were there in bondage for 215 years, and under the leadership of Moses were brought out. They wandered in the trackless ways of the wilderness for 38 years, and because of their murmurings and discontent, they were shut out of the promised land, and only two of them, Caleb and Joshua, who were over 20 years of age when they came out of Egypt, were allowed to enter the land. All the rest of them perished in the wilderness. But finally, under the leadership of Joshua, those remaining were led into the promised land. The land of Canaan, the land that the Bible describes as flowing with milk and honey, marvelous land of great blessing, a land of bountiful blessing and of great opportunity for Israel. They lived in houses they didn't build. They drank water from wells they didn't dig. They ate the fruit of vineyards that they didn't plant. A goodly land. They were a blessed and happy people. But nonetheless, they lived in the midst of heathen populations who were themselves idolaters and who worshipped idols rather than God. Israel was judged by judges whom the Lord himself named. These oriental kingdoms, these heathen kingdoms, had kings. Ultimately, 
The Jews wanted to be like their heathen neighbors. They wanted the pomp and the ceremony of those oriental kingdoms. They were strictly warned of the consequences of that demand. They were told what would happen. They would suffer persecution and hardship and trial. They persisted in their demand. Finally, the Lord tolerated it, though he never approved it. Gave them a king. Sometimes in those days, the Lord tolerated what he never approved because of their ignorance, the hardness of their hearts. For example, polygamy. It was never a part of the Lord's original plan that his people practice polygamy for a marriage. But the Lord said that Moses suffered it for a time, suffered it, mind you, for a time because of the hardness of the people's hearts. That is, had it not been for that provision temporarily made, so wicked and corrupt were men in that day, they would simply have killed their wives to get rid of them. Consequently, for protection of women, it was for a time tolerated. It was no part of God's original plan, and God took it out of the way in the new covenant, made no provision for it. Instrumental music. It may surprise you to hear me say that it was no part of God's plan, even in the Old Testament, that his people use instrumental music. I want to call your attention to some vital facts. Has it ever occurred to you that the law of Moses, given at Sinai, forbade additions to it, just as surely as the law of Christ? Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, Thou shalt not add unto that which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it. And further, it was 500 years. 500 years, mind you, from the time the law was given on Sinai until the strains of mechanical music were ever heard in Israel. 500 years. And when it was introduced, David took full credit for it. Listen. First Chronicles 23.5 The instruments which I made, said David, to worship God with, and again and again in the books of the Chronicles, this sharp contrast. Consider it a moment. The song of the Lord and the instruments of David. The song of the Lord and the instruments of David. And in Amos chapter 6 and verse 5, this solemn warning, Woe unto them that invent unto themselves instruments of music like David. It was no part of his plan in the Old Testament. Though for a time he tolerated it, even governed it as it set out in the Psalms, as it was practiced in connection with the worship of the temple. And so the Lord sometimes in those days allowed for the time being things to exist which he didn't approve. So the kingdom, in fact he himself said, I gave him a king in mine anger, I took him away in my wrath. But Saul was named the first king, 1095 B.C. He reigned for a period of 40 years. He was succeeded by his son David, or rather by David, 
who was himself also a king for 40 years, and then David's son, Solomon, succeeded him and reigned for 40 years. So the period of the United Kingdom was for 120 years. The rightful heir of Solomon was Rehoboam, and he normally would have succeeded and, as a matter of fact, did. But because of his short-sightedness, his senseless father, he allowed the kingdom to rend asunder. Ten of the tribes rebelled, went down to Bethel, set up an alien form of government and worship, and by 721 B.C. had become so assimilated by the heathens among whom they lived, they lost their identity, passed out of existence as tribal peoples. The two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with varying degrees of faithfulness, continued. Judah being the larger, Benjamin was incorporated into Judah and became a part of them. So they continued on down until the cross. Now mind you, they were continually under bondage. First to the Babylonians. Secondly, when the Babylonians in 638 were conquered by the Medes and Persians, they became answerable to the Medes and Persians. When the Medes and Persians were conquered in 330 B.C. by the Greeks, they became subject to the Greeks. When the Romans conquered the Greeks in 30 B.C., they became subject to the Greeks. So they were continually under bondage. They acquired during that 500 years bitter resentment against anybody that would keep them in subjection. So over that period of time, they gradually changed their position regarding Messiah. Now watch this carefully. You cannot interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament literally without them focusing directly on Jesus of Nazareth. It's absolutely amazing how detailed and minute those prophecies are. One can write a biography of the life of our Lord using only the prophets. So detailed are their statements. Let me give an example. In Isaiah, the 50th chapter and the 6th verse, in describing the indignities that would be heaped upon the suffering Savior, it is sad that they would actually pull the beard from his face. Now, it's not said in the books of the gospel that that occurred. But we know it did because it was prophesied that it would. I mention that as an example of the minuteness of detail characteristic of those prophecies. You cannot interpret them literally without them focus, focusing on Jesus. But the Jews rejected Jesus. So they were in a position of having to do something about their prophets. You know what they did? They changed their position regarding the prophets. They began to say they were never intended to be interpreted literally. All they are, they said, are simply figurative representations of a golden age of jury when every Jew will sit under his own vine and fig tree and peace and tranquility will return to Israel. In the rejection of the Lord, they rejected their own prophets. And God rejected them. The most fateful day in human history in connection with our Lord's death was that day in Jerusalem 
when those Jews shouted out in their efforts to condemn Christ, we have no king but Caesar. If ever a people on earth hated Caesar with all their being, it was those Jews. The point is, they hated the Lord a little more than they hated Caesar. And they were willing to acknowledge allegiance to a conqueror in order to get rid of the Lord. And so God rejected them. And while they continued on down from A.D. 30 until A.D. 70, in their civil activities, they lost their standing before God when they rejected Christ. That's the great fallacy of the premillennial doctrine that affects to see some place in God's plan for the Jewish people. They had that place. They gave it up when they rejected Christ. If they're ever saved, they'll be saved like anybody else by obedience to the gospel. They won't have to go back to Jerusalem in order to do that. At any rate, from the cross until 70 a day, Bear in mind now that there was a Roman army of occupation in the land, the design of which was to keep the people under subjection. These Jews bitterly resented that, and they kept up a continuous guerrilla warfare against those soldiers, Roman soldiers. They engaged in terroristic activities against their army of occupation. Finally, the Romans got tired of it. They decided to put an end to that rebellion in Palestine by the Jews forevermore. So they sent an army to Palestine under the leadership of a Roman general by the name of Titus, who, when he got there, threw a siege around the city, cutting off their supplies. But back in that day, wars were fought largely by hand-to-hand -hand combat. Quite obviously, a city worth defending would be behind walls, being easier to fight off an attacking force when behind walls. So Jerusalem was and is a walled city. So it was Titus in time to circle the city, cut off the supplies, and so starve them into subjection. But then strangely, unaccountably, after a period of time, he suddenly withdrew those armies, terminating for a time the siege. Strange indeed, unheard of, unaccountable in military annals. You don't set up a siege, the design of which is to cut off supplies and then terminate it for a period and give them an opportunity to recoup, but Titus did. He didn't know why he did it. Josephus, who records these events, didn't know why he did it, but we do. Because it was a divine intervention an act of providence by the Lord. For watch carefully now. During that brief interval, while those soldiers were pulled back, every Christian in the city got out. Every one of them. Not a single Christian perished in the final, ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. Eusebius, first of the church historians, says, that they assemble at Pella. Can you not imagine the joy that must have filled their hearts as they reflected upon what was undoubtedly a direct intervention on the part of God to save them from certain disaster? The Lord had predicted this many years before. For example, in the 24th chapter of Matthew, He had taught them to pray 
that their flight not be on the Sabbath day or in the winter. If on the Sabbath day, the gates of the city would have been closed. They couldn't have got out. If in the winter time, the hardships and difficulties incident to travel in that line would have made it difficult, especially for the aged and the ill and the infirm. So all of them got out. Then the siege was resumed. And amid some of the most horrible suffering that humanity has ever experienced, that finally fell to the Romans. A.D. 70. Titus took 50,000 Jews back to Rome, marched them through the streets of the city in a triumphant procession indicating the fall of the Jews to the Roman armies. Now back, if you will, for a little while to the Arabs. Mind you, they had lived in the deserts and in association with heathen peoples and a long, long since imbibed idolatry, paganism, no longer believed in the true God. They were a very prolific people, always looking for new territory into which to run. And when Palestine opened up, they rushed in there and took over the country. A.D. 70 and shortly thereafter. And held the country, the land, for over 1,900 years. About A.D. 600... A man by the name of Muhammad, a dreamy, mystic sort of fellow, who after years in the deserts claimed that he'd had a new religion revealed to him, began to preach it, first of all, with little success. After some time, he had only a handful of converts. But then he married a rich widow. As a result of the money that he came to control in this fashion, he hired a mercenary army. He began to force Mohammedanism at the point of a sword on these heathen tribes, Arab tribes. They fell before it by the tens of thousands. The next generation born into it readily accepted it. And so it spread like a prairie fire all across the Middle East, onto the Far East, and then finally over the oceans to Europe, where it is today one of the world's most dominant and, uh, and uh, largest, one of the largest and most dominant of the world's religion. To give you some idea, by comparison, maybe I should say by contrast, of the size of that movement, we have, that is the churches of Christ, according to conservative estimates, about a million, one and a half million people. Some think that's a little bit too liberal. Maybe one and a quarter million. One million two hundred and fifty thousand. Well, let's say that it's a million and a half. One and one half millions. The Mohammedan religion has over eight hundred million as compared to our one and one half millions. As a matter of fact, there are more Mohammedan mosques, places of worship for those people on American soil than there are churches of Christ in all the Arab world. They're converting us at a greater rate than we are them. I predict that by the end of the next century or maybe before, maybe the middle of it, there will be a great worldwide war fought between the forces of Mohammedanism and so-called nominal 
Christianity, in which there'll be an effort on the part of that religion to dominate the earth. As a matter of fact, the fatalistic concepts that they have, the idea that if you die in support of your religion and they believe by that, in support of the doctrine of Muhammad, that you have a certain ticket to paradise. And so they rush gladly into war, gladly suffer death, in order that they may assure their ultimate salvation. So, we talk about the solution of the Middle East problem. There is no solution. That will become very apparent before we conclude today. Some of World War I was fought in Palestine. At the end of World War I, the British government set up a mandate over that land and maintained an army of occupation there until World War end of World War II. When in about 1938, Hitler began his drive through the Low Countries, the Balkans, and began to expel the Jews under the mistaken notion, now mind you, the mistaken notion held by the British, the French, and the American governments that in some fashion or other, Palestine is the divine homeland of the Jews, began to allow these displaced people to go in there, very much against the wishes of the Arab peoples who had already been there for 1900 years. There were two reasons for it. One, the land could scarcely sustain the Arab population already there. In fact, most people are hardly aware of how tiny that country is no bigger than some counties. You can drive from one end of it to the other in an automobile at a leisurely gait in about three hours and across it in about 60 minutes. Yet into that little land, already overrun by Arabs, over a million Jews were allowed dinner. Intolerable situation. They fought each other daily because they hated each other with a vengeance that passes understanding. Finally, the British got tired of trying to keep pace and announced they were pulling out. The day they pulled out, the Arabs and Jews went to war. Though the Arabs had numerical supremacy of probably a thousand to one, the Jews had military and intellectual supremacy. So they just began to push them back. When it became apparent they'd push them into the deserts, the United Nations stepped in, forced an armistice, established the no man's land, right down through the heart of Jerusalem. One of the trips that I've made over there before the geography again changed, you had to walk through that no man's land between the two countries in order to get from one to the other, into which neither side could enter the other. But then it wasn't long after that until they attacked again, the, Jew, the Arabs did. This time the Jews pushed them across the River Jordan, out of what's known as the West Bank. Imagine a map of Palestine. See a line running right down through the heart of Jerusalem. All on the east side of that line, from the line to the River Jordan, is what's known as the West Bank. That's the area that the Arabs won't buy. What they now claim they've set up an independent uh, government. Although they have no control over it. The Jews controlling it. But then it wasn't long after that until the Egyptians attacked. Bear in mind that Israel is simply surrounded, except by the ocean or the sea, by enemies. The north, Lebanon, Arabs. To the northeast, 
Syria, Arabs. Directly east, the Transjordans. Southeast, Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Directly south, Egypt, all of them. Subscribers to the Mohammedan doctrine. So the Egyptians attacked. This was the third war. This lasted only five days. The Israelite army swept down through the Sinaitic Peninsula, destroyed, multiplied millions of dollars of Soviet equipment, crushed the army completely. The Israelites lost only 153 men in the entire war. The most potent fighting force on earth today, incidentally, along the roads that lead from Egypt northward into Palestine, especially after you get into Palestine, along those roads till this day are the burned out ruins of tanks and armored vehicles left there purposely by the Jews. In fact, they even paint them to keep them from rusting down as an example of what happens to the invader. They talk about the solution of the Middle East problem, there isn't any. Because both sides have refused to adhere to the principles, the only principles that would solve them. To give you some idea of how deep those feelings run, if you live in and own property that your father and mother owned and lived in, that property to you has not only an intrinsic value, but a sentimental value as well. If your grandparents and your great-grandparents and so on owned that property and lived in it, that sentimental value increases astronomically. There were at least 60 Arab families before they were driven out of Palestine who could trace their ancestry on that land back for 1,300 years. The Jews say, we're willing to have a commission appointed, determine the value of the land, pay for it. The Arabs say, we want no pay for it, we just want the land. The Jews say, we'll never give it up. The Arabs say, they'll take it when they can. So the war continues. I think one of the saddest comments that I've seen on the matter was that from an aged Arab father who, after one of their disastrous wars which they'd lost, simply commented, we'll just raise up more sons to carry on the fight. So I have to say to you today, Sarah caused a lot of trouble and she tried to get the Lord out of a difficulty. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Days Gone By podcast on the Scatterbroad Network, brought to you by Ironworks. You can learn more about us at scatteredabroad.org and coming soon to ironworkspress.org, or look up either work on Facebook. We look forward to studying with you again soon.